Welcome to Cast Conversations, a monthly podcast for school leaders by school leaders. Each of our episodes will engage practitioners and thought leaders in conversations about issues, ideas, and innovations relevant to today's busy educators. Hello, everyone. My name is Rosie O'Brien Wojtek, and I'm the current president for the Connecticut Association of Schools. Today, we're talking with Ajit Gopalakrishnan. Ajit is the Chief Performance Officer of the Connecticut State Department of Education. He oversees the state's data collection, data warehouse, student assessment, research, evaluation, and district school accountability initiatives. Prior to assuming this role, he worked for over 15 years in the field of adult education and literacy where he managed initiatives focused around the content standards, assessment, data collection, reporting, and accountability. Ajit has authored publications on technology, accountability, and learner retention. Welcome, Ajit. Well, thank you, Rosie, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Great. Well, we're glad that you're here today and that you're talking with us about statewide accountability initiatives and assessments. Quite a bit to talk about, so let's get started. I'd like to start by having you describe your role and responsibilities at the Department of Education. Specifically, what does it mean to oversee the state's data collection, data warehouse, student assessments, research, evaluation, and district accountability initiatives, and probably anything else that comes across your desk? So tell us about your job and what you do. Sure. So I'm the chief performance officer for the Department of Education. So I oversee the performance office, which performs the different functions that you listed. I think a a way to think about it is that we deal with anything that has to do with data assessment and accountability. So basically collecting data from districts or from other sources, bringing the data in, putting it together into a meaningful whole, producing reports and data portals for people to use the data, and then also implementing the formal accountability system for schools and districts. And much of our work is actually governed by requirements either in state and or federal statutes. So in a nutshell, we deal with any quantitative type data that's involved in public education in Connecticut and that comes into our office and we process it and we try to make meaning from it and try to use it to help our students succeed in our schools. And it must be an awful lot of data. (laughs) It is an awful lot of data. At times, yes. Yes. So let's talk about the next generation accountability system. What is the purpose of the accountability system? That's an excellent question. For us, the purpose of the accountability system is to help the state identify schools that need our support so that we can bring help where it's needed, Mm -hmm. schools and districts, not just schools. And Also, the purpose of doing an accountability system is to reflect back to the schools and districts on important elements, important data points that are indications of how our students are doing in our schools and helping schools to serve their students better so that ultimately the Department of Education and our local school districts and all our educators were in this education system for the same reason, for the right reason, which is our Mm -hmm. students. So ultimately the hope with an accountability system is that it will serve as information that helps inform improvement for our students. Great, so in the next generation accountability system, there are 12 indicators. How did you decide which indicators to put in and which ones do you see is the most important? Sure, good question. I think before I answer that, let me just make one other point and then I'll answer that particular question. 
we're starting off with the next generation accountability system, right? That is our, quote, formal accountability system. And we think of, you know, sometimes we use the shorthand of big A and little a, and big A accountability is the formal accountability system, which we call the next generation accountability system. There's also little a, which is just reporting of data. And sometimes just through public reporting of data, there is a whole bunch of action and accountability that occurs in a public space. So let me get to the 12 indicators and how do we settle on them, which Mm -hmm. is perhaps more important, shall we say, if we were to think of it that way. The way we settled on the indicators, there was actually a lengthy process that happened in 2013-14, sort of over a year, year and a half period, where we were in the midst of building an accountability system that was moving away from the old AYP approach, which was really just looking at test scores for the most part, and really just one way of looking at test scores, which was, you know, you were either proficient or not proficient, and that's all that mattered in the, in the entire system. So it was sort of trying to move away from that to get a more holistic view of school and district performance. So that was the path that we were already on. But when we were building a system, we weren't just thinking willy-nilly, oh, let's throw in a random set of indicators. It was more driven by what were the goals for the State Board of Education for public education, mm-hmm. the public education system. And the board at that point sort of had three big buckets or philosophies, if you will. One was to improve academic achievement and close achievement gaps. Another one was college and career readiness, so that when our students leave us, that they're prepared for what's coming next. And the third one was that our public education system will provide a well-rounded education for our students. So those were kind of the three broad buckets under which we started to look at what sort of indicators would make sense if we were to think of school and district performance. So when we started looking at existing indicators, part of our commitment also was that we would not add data burden for districts and schools, that we were not going to put in indicators or start whole new data collections that we weren't already collecting. Our commitment was that we had to use what we had first. If it didn't work, Mm -hmm. then we would have to discontinue it and then institute something new. We can't just pile something on without taking something away. Uh, That's a good point. I'm glad you guys are thinking that way. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. In fact, over the past few years, we have eliminated several data collections and we continue to look for ways to streamline things so that we reduce burden. So, but that's the framework with which we started. And I would say, you know, so within each of these broad buckets, there are different indicators. So when we talk of academics, the academic achievement gap closure, we not only look at achievement, we look at growth as well. Mm -hmm. When we look at college and career readiness, we have different ways of looking at high school graduation. We look at on track to high school graduation, actual four-year high school graduation and six-year graduation rates, and college post-secondary entrance. We also look at chronic absenteeism, kids that rather they're coming to school. And on the well-rounded education side, we also look at access to the arts and physical fitness Mm -hmm. of our students. So I think when you look at which of these is, quote, more important, I would say not all indicators are weighted equally. And there's a reason for that, because there is a certain level of prioritization, a value statement that happens when you put weights on this. The indicator that's weighted the heaviest for elementary middle schools is academic growth. And the reason for that is that we strongly believe that a school's performance should be driven more by how they help grow their students from one grade to the next, and less so about how their students achieve in a particular year. Achievement has its place, and you know it carries a lot of weight in the system, but growth carries a little more weight. 
So right. if I were to say the most important indicator, it would be academic growth. It applies in grades where we can implement our growth model. Right, right. So what have you learned so far? We've done the growth piece now for a couple <coughs> of years. Have you gleaned any insights into what's happening in the schools across the state? We've actually implemented three years of the accountability system. We started in fourteen fifteen. But we didn't have growth data in that year because it was the first year of Smarter Balanced. We have growth for 15, 16, and 16, 17. So really the last two years are probably, quote, comparable in terms of the accountability system. I think what we have learned is that when you have a multiple measures accountability system, it brings many more people to the table to the accountability conversation at the local level. It's no longer just the reading and math teachers. So science is part of the mix you know, just from an academic standpoint, but also attendance coordinators are coming in, the school social workers, school counselors are coming into the mix. When you get to the high school level, we talk about college and career readiness, or students taking coursework, so CTE, career technical education folks are at the table. So I think what we're seeing is that when you broaden the system, many more people are coming into the mix. That's one thing we've seen. Mm -hmm. The other thing we've seen is that it is possible to achieve the outcomes we are seeking, collectively seeking for our students. That we do have examples, when we look at academic growth, of schools in, let's say, our traditionally underperforming districts who seem to be showing much stronger growth than others. And much stronger growth, especially for our students who need that type of growth. Mm -hmm. And better so than other districts in more affluent areas who might have been traditionally high achieving, but are seeing that maybe their growth is not as strong as they would like. Mm -hmm. So I think it's allowed us to, A, it's affirmed that it is possible. Mm -hmm. It's also, I think, highlighted areas where everybody has work to do. Just because you're high achieving doesn't mean you don't have work to do. There are areas that are being highlighted. And just because you have historically not been a high achieving school doesn't mean you can't come up in the accountability system as an overall high-performing school because with growth, it really allows those schools also to showcase their strengths. Excellent, yes. So that kind of gets into the school profile and performance reports. The latest ones were released in February 27, 2018. What should school leaders know about those reports and how should those be used? Uh, Excellent question. Again, I think these are terrific questions, by the way. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) These are very good questions. I think the school profile and performance report is really just the new name for what used to be called a strategic school profile. So some of many of your folks might be familiar with that terminology. So the profile and performance report reports are really a high-level view of what's happening in a school or district. So I think for school leaders, my point would be that this is your, again, a high-level picture. It is your one-stop shop for starting to inquire about what might be your strengths and what might be your challenges. Mm -hmm. So I think my ask for school leaders would be that as leaders, you should be absolutely familiar with everything that's in that report whether it be enrollment information, suspension, expulsion rates, or chronic absence, or the SPI information, school performance index is in there, or the next generation accountability system, the results, those are in the profile report as well. If uh, you looked at nothing else on EdSite except Mm -hmm. that one report, that probably gives you a very good starting point for beginning the conversation of where do I need to inquire deeper. It's not going to answer every question, but it's definitely a very good starting point. And it pulls together data from over 30 different sources, actually. 
And the data sets get more complex when you get to high school level as well. Mm-hmm. But it pulls in data from a variety of different sources and puts it together. So part of what I think school leaders can help in getting familiar is not just understanding the metrics, but also knowing where the data are coming from. So on the performance office side, we handle the collection side of the data, but also the reporting and the accountability. So we kind of see the full continuum of data coming in the door and data going out. So I think from a school leader perspective and a school level perspective, I would strongly urge that school leaders should really know how the data from their school are actually making it part of coming to the state and how they're actually being used in these reports. There are a lot of tools that we put out there, but if there are any questions, we strongly encourage contacting your own district to sort of find out more about how things are working, but also encourage you to contact the state as well. Okay, great. So we can just pick up the phone and give you a call, right? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. So there, there you have it, which is great. You you just mentioned EdSight, so I'd like to talk about that for a minute. I'm not quite sure when it actually got started. I know I got my password and got on probably a couple months ago, so I don't know how long it's actually been up and running. But for anybody that doesn't know, it's the State Education Data Repository. What is it that school leaders should know about this? How can we use it? I know there's a variety of tools out there. Give mm-hmm. us an overview of EdSight and how we should be using that. Sure. As a tool. Absolutely. There are two parts to EdSight. There is a public site to EdSight, a public mm-hmm. portal, edsight.ct.gov. Okay. You know, that's the public portal, and you can get your profile reports and any other report that we have publicly available, and everybody publicly is accessing the reports on public ed site. When you go to public ed site, the data are aggregated. There's no student level data on public ed site because it is meant just for the broad public. So everything is protected information. The other side of ed site is the new side that we have launched this year. We call it ed site secure. It's designed for authorized users from districts and Recently, we've opened it up for school-level access as well. So what EdSite Secure gives you is the ability for, again, for authorized users to go in and get at that individual student-level information about your students. So at this point, we have a few reports on the EdSite Secure side. So you can, for example, academic growth, which we talked about just now, you can actually go into EdSite Secure and you can get the individual student level growth information in ELA and mathematics for your students. For example, you can find out who is growing in my school. How are students who are English learners, how are they growing as compared to students who are not English learners? And are there English learners who are doing a good job of meeting their Smarter Balanced Growth targets versus some others who aren't? Who are those students? And how can I pull that information out and then use that in your own internal discussions? You can also ask questions like, when you say who is not growing, are students who are lower achieving growing at faster rates than those who are higher achieving or vice versa? Or maybe there's not really a difference. But you can ask those kinds of questions and query the data in a very interactive way and actually play with the data to get a little deeper into answering more of your own questions about what it is that is happening with your students. So it allows you to drill deeper, but because it's secure, you can drill right down to the student level and say, who is the child and what is their profile? The other good thing about EdSight Secure that's different from obviously the public side, under EdSight Secure, it connects directly to PSIS, our public school information system. So what that means is that 
Say a student moves into your school, and if they're registered in PSIS and attributed to your school, then the very next day you can go into EdSight Secure and get their prior Smarter Balanced Growth information or Smarter Balanced Achievement information. You can get that historical data about your students who you have currently. Wow, so that's great because often you have to wait several weeks before you get the records from the other school district, and in the meantime, you've lost those days of educating the students. Exactly. So you get access to that information really the next day after they're registered in PSI. So what other additions or changes are you planning in the future for EdSight? Oh, there's so many more things (laughs) I'd like to do and I'd like to do tomorrow. But with the staff we have, we have to sort of take it methodically and one step at a time. I mean, it's just we need small wins to keep us going. So there are many things we'd like to do, but we can't turn on a dime on some of them. But the next priority for EdSight Secure, and even the public side, is the English learner proficiency assessment information, the last links information. That is the next thing that's on the docket for EdSight. You know, I thought it would be out by now, but we've had some development issues that we've had to work through. It is more complex than we had anticipated, but I think we're making very good progress. And we expect to provide that. So what that means is that when a student comes into your community and let's say they are an English learner, let's say that happens in the middle of the year, and let's say you want to know how they did on the last links last year, you will have that information so that you don't have to retest the student. That'll save a lot of time. (laughs) Exactly. That is exactly our hope is to transfer that information over. Great. So it sounds like you're doing some great things. We've started now this longitudinal data system. How do you see administrators, principals, school leaders, how do you see us using that effectively? And if you were doing a workshop, what would be maybe three things that you would want principals to walk away from knowing about the importance of using longitudinal data. What is it that we should be doing, could be doing, that would really enhance the instruction in our school? So EdSight is our longitudinal Mm -hmm. data repository. So what EdSight does at an individual student level is it, by using the student's unique identification, i.e. the SACID, Mm -hmm. we are able to actually thread together a student's experience through our public school system. So EdSight is that longitudinal repository. So I just don't want folks to think like it's like something else. Yeah, right, no, it right, is right. it is EdSight and, Good. and thank you for clarifying <laughs> that. Yes. And that's what it is. I think the benefit of longitudinal information comes when you actually see the information longitudinally. So one of the reports we have on EdSight Secure, and I know you wanted to talk about that as well, Mm -hmm. is the early indication tool. Right, And let me actually speak a little about that because that is the first report that actually uses the longitudinal information we have at the state level about a student and tries to use that information to provide an indication to the school when we think that based on that data that a student might have some difficulty meeting their academic milestones. That's in a nutshell what the early indication Mm -hmm. tool is. We provide a support level and a support level really is whether a student might need high levels of support to reach their academic milestones Mm -hmm. or medium levels of support or low levels of support. And you may have heard of other terms like early warning systems or things like that with these types of things. We don't call it an early warning system. We call it an indication tool in the sense that it's an indication for the school um, and the district when there is a child based on the profile of their prior data. We think that you might want to take a look at this child and make sure that you know, you're doing whatever you need to do. And so the early indication tool is the first report that actually uses the longitudinal data. So we've released at this point two 
models. And by models, I mean we're not trying to, in our early indication tool, looking at the likelihood of a student, let's say, graduating. A lot of these early warning systems will say, what's the likelihood of high school dropout? And that will be the thing they will try to predict. That's not the approach we took because for us it did not make any sense to try to give a probability of dropout for a second grader. Right. Like, so we start... Oh, I we, would hope not. I mean, <laughs> since, I, I, since we're in an elementary school today and exactly. we're recording, I, I hope not, yes. Exactly. But yeah. there are systems that do that, though. Yeah. So we, to us, that did not make any sense. So we took a milestone-based approach where we said, okay, what makes sense for a lower elementary grade type students. So we said, okay, third grade achievement is something we should be looking at. So for students in grades one, two, and three, what we're trying to show you is students who may need support to reach higher levels of achievement in third grade. Our next model is a fourth through sixth model, where we're looking at sixth grade achievement. The third model is a seven through nine model, which we're actually in the midst of developing, which is not released yet, mm-hmm. which looks at students being on track to high school graduation, oh, which wow. is similar to our accountability indicator, actually. And then for students in grades 10 through 12, we're looking at college and career readiness. Not just high school graduation, but our students really meeting college and career readiness benchmarks on prevalent assessments mm-hmm. that we have. So that's kind of our milestone-based approach. So what we have released so far through EdSight Secure is the one through three model and the four through six model. And what school leaders and folks at the school level and at the district level now are able to do is go into that report and actually, so if you're looking at, let's say, the one through three model, you can look up your current first graders, second graders, and third graders and look at which of the students from your current list of students who we have deemed as needing high support, medium support, low support, so that you can then see, you know, hey, maybe we missed a kid, or no, this matches our SRBI efforts. We're tracking these kids. I'm glad this is jiving with the state's Mm -hmm. indication. This is great. You know, so it's really more an information and indication back to the school, back to the district. So what this early indication report does is it uses multiple factors to identify so how do we identify, right? So how do we know who is high support? So in a, for a first grader, there's very limited information we have. We have their kindergarten attendance. Okay. We have their behavior in kindergarten. By behavior, I mean suspensions, in-school suspension, if there's anything like mm-hmm. out-of-school suspension, and also the kindergarten inventory, which is the teacher right. rating. And the reason we looked at these factors is because we know that through our own study that these factors relate to third-grade achievement. So we said, let's look at the factors that relate to third grade achievement and use them to identify students who might need support. So when you get to second grade, we have two years of data now. Mm -hmm. We have kindergarten profile and first grade profile. And when we get to third grade, we have, again, you know, cumulatively more data that we're able to use to identify and indicate to you which are the students who may need support. So when you go into this report in EdSight Secure, what you do see is that historical longitudinal information for a student. So you would be able to see for your current third grader, what is your kindergarten inventory scores? What was their attendance in second grade? And what was their attendance in first grade? What was the suspensions, in-school suspension, out-of-school suspension? And the other factor is mobility, in-district mobility. Have they had instances of in-district mobility? We present that longitudinal information to you in one line of data. So you look at a student's name and you just see all that information for one student 
all in one place. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to like piece it together from five different places. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you can imagine when you go to a four through six, a fourth grader, a fifth grader, now Smarter Balanced is coming into the picture Mm -hmm. as well. So you will see their Smarter Balanced scores for the past two years. If it's a fifth grader, you'll see third and fourth grade all again in one line of data. So it, it really gives you the ability to look at that historical profile of a student and then use that to help make sure that we're not letting anyone fall through any possible That's cracks. wonderful. So is there like a report, are there directions out in EdSight Secure that tell administrators like me or anybody else that's looking how to use that data, how to access it? I think we have done some webinars, we have done some in-person trainings, and I think we need to do more. Mm -hmm. There are resources in every EdSight Secure Report, there's a resources tab. So if you just click that tab, there's a bunch of resources there that not only tell you how to use the report, but also include some background technical information as to how we built this model as well. So there's a combination of stuff out there, but the best thing I say is, do not, seriously, and I mean this, do not hesitate to call or email us, seriously. And the EdSite email is edsite.sde at ct.gov, edsite.sde at ct.gov. If you just email that, we can also get back to you. Wonderful. That's a great resource, so thank you. Sure. Changing the subject a little bit, on April 10th, the Connecticut Mirror reported that Connecticut's performance on the national report card doesn't budge. Explain what measures are used to compare Connecticut with the rest of the country and what the data from the report is telling us. Sure. So the nation's report card is the NAEP assessment. I imagine you're familiar with the NAEP assessment. Yes. I you probably to administer yeah. it, I think, <laughs> I think it's fourth grade, isn't it? I haven't it is it fourth and eighth grade. Yeah. Well, actually, NAEP own. has many parts to it, but the primary reading and math assessment is the fourth and eighth grade. There's also a twelfth grade version, but again, the main one is the fourth and eighth grade that many people, when they talk about nation's report card and the main NAEP results, that's what they're talking about. So the results that were released in April were from the NAEP assessment that was administered in Connecticut and across the country, really, in the winter of 2017. So 2017 winter is when those assessments were administered. And I think what it told us is that our scores were flat from the prior administration, but that in reading it said that we continue to be among the highest states in the country. In mathematics, though, we use the term we are middle of the pack, that Connecticut is actually either like the national average in fourth grade or maybe slightly better than the national average in eighth grade, but there are many states in mathematics that are ahead of us. We are not among the highest performing states when it comes to our mathematics achievement in either in fourth or in eighth grade. So the one sort of small bright spot for us on the NAEP this year was compared to the 2011 NAEP, there was a slight closing of the achievement gap in grade four reading when it came to our students from our low-income families or for our Hispanic students. So there was, a, again, a slight closure, which is hard to achieve, mm-hmm. but I, I was really thrilled to, thrilled to see that. So that we used 2011 as our baseline for that particular look, given that that was the start of the new standards and, you know, sort of as a baseline. So it was, it was good to see that, but, again, we have a lot of work to do when it comes to mathematics. Were there any things that we gleaned from that, like 
Are there certain parts of teaching mathematics that we need to really focus in on? It's interesting you bring that question up because that's exactly what we have been looking at. Uh-huh. So the NAEP actually released a whole bunch of items in both fourth and eighth grade. So we've been sort of going through a bunch of the different NAEP items, release items in fourth and eighth grade math to see what were items where we've done sort of like the national average or like our neighbors mm-hmm. to the north. Uh-huh. And then we try to say like, where were the areas where maybe we didn't do as well as our neighbors, and why might that be? So we're just beginning that conversations internally, and here we're actually leaning on our friends and colleagues in the academic office mm-hmm. because they are more of the content experts. So we actually have been sharing right. some of these with right. them to sort of see, you know, are there areas that these point to? The other thing we're looking also is systemically are there differences mm-hmm. between states, you know, states that are higher achieving than us, And, you know, there are, I think, points of inquiry at this point, no definitive things, things like perhaps our instructional time in mathematics is not as high as certain other states that might be performing better than us. Perhaps the type of professional development that our teachers receive in mathematics, especially after they get their certification, you know, in grade four, it would be the K-6 certification. Have they had really math-specific college-level professional development after they got their certification. And there are questions like this that we can actually probe into the NAEP results because the teachers who are part of the NAEP sample actually fill out these surveys. Mm -hmm. So we've been kind of using that information to try to see what might point to some of these differences and are there things that we as a state can do to really no longer be middle of the pack in mathematics and really be among the top states. Great. It's amazing what you can do with data. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It can also be overwhelming. So (laughs) you you really need to know what you're after. Absolutely. Otherwise, you're just digging. You get lost. It's (laughs) easy to get lost. (laughs) So let's talk about some of the most frequently asked questions that you get from school leaders to your office, just because maybe there's some things that people listening would want to know. I think the questions we get are varied, but I would say they might fall into a few buckets. I think one of the first questions is understanding how the data are being aggregated. Mm -hmm. I think oftentimes what we have learned is that school leaders and school staff are one step removed from the submission of data to the State Department of Ed. In some districts, there may be greater conversations between the district-level staff and the school-level staff during the data submission and preparation process, and in others, less so. So I think we do get a lot of questions about really understanding how the reporting of data actually leads to the aggregation, the ultimate Mm -hmm. rolling up of the data. So I think it's kind of understanding that whole thing is something we've had questions about. I think the other area where we tend to get a lot of questions is assessment. And we haven't talked much about assessment so far, but other than the NAEP a little bit, but I think it's really understanding and being uh, thoughtful about how to make best use of the time we use to assess a student. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just talking about the state assessment, just the general notion of you assess a student because you don't know something about the student or you don't know whether they know something or not, and you conduct an assessment, whether it be during the classroom or a stop and test kind of situation. But being strategic about what that exercise is or should be, I think we're beginning to get a lot more questions in that arena and being really thoughtful about that because time is limited. Right. So I think the clarifying, understanding the metrics, understanding how it all comes together, and I think understanding a better use of assessment 
are probably the two sort of big areas. I mean, there's probably mm -hmm. others, but yeah. two that come to mind. Those are very important. And as a school leader, where <laughs> would I, me or anyone else, where would we find that information so that we could get better at understanding the metrics, getting better at helping our teachers to be able to assess what it is that they, and know what it is they really want to measure so it's aligned with what they're teaching? Because often that doesn't happen as well. So are there resources that you have or things that you would point us to? Sure. I mean, in terms of the data side of things, a couple of things. One is on EdSite, the public EdSite. We have a link to our Next Generation Accountability System. So you can go there, and then we've created this guide to using accountability data for improvement. Okay. It's just a straight document, mm -hmm. and it goes indicator by indicator. So it's pretty detailed. It's not a quick read. But it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> who put you to sleep at, at night. No. It is complex. Yeah, right. And and for good reason, actually. I mean, it's complex for a reason in that you want to make the fairest evaluation possible. And when you want that, it does get nuanced. Mm -hmm. You know, as educators, I think people understand that it's not simple to put a kid in a box, right? right? I mean, there's so many facets about how a kid is doing, just that to answer that question. So I think it's the same way when it comes to school performance or district. It's, you know, you can have a number, but it's still, there's a lot of nuance to it. So I think that there's a lot of nuance in our measures. So trying to understand that, I think, takes a little while. But that guide, I think, does an excellent job of documenting where the data come from. At least it's a very good start. Okay. But what I would also say is that for school leaders to encourage and have conversations within your district if you aren't having those conversations already. Because I think the challenge is that once data are submitted and certified as accurate and we freeze the data, mm -hmm. there's no changing that data. Right. So if three months down the road you find, oh, this was wrong or this attendance didn't get reported right, it's unfortunately too late at that point. So it's really important for school level folks to be involved in the submission process. So it doesn't mean that you have to actually submit the data. The district is probably doing that on your behalf, but at least reviewing the reports and looking at the summary totals prior to the uploading or prior to the certification of the data, prior to the district saying, yep, we're done, good, all set. So it's really being involved in that process, I would say, is important. So from the data side, I would say that's a good place to start as the accountability guide. When it comes to assessment, I don't think it's a cookie-cutter answer. I think there are a lot of factors that come into play. There are districts use a variety of assessments. Mm -hmm. Several districts use interim benchmark assessments, standardized benchmark assessments mm -hmm. that they use locally. They're not necessarily state requirements, but they use that as part of their progress monitoring mm -hmm. process. And so we've just encouraged districts to be much more thoughtful about their choices about assessments because the state assessment, which comes once a year, is a standardized assessment. Right. And the commissioner talks very well about how what we need is an annual physical. Mm -hmm. You don't need a physical multiple times during the year. Right. So if you have an overall measure on a student's achievement, the stuff that happens in the middle doesn't need to be a physical again. It needs to be assessments that actually help classroom teachers identify students' strengths and weaknesses and teach. State assessment, you know, isn't designed to provide that. And I think you know, talk of a common question from school leaders and schools is, you know, what more can I get from the Smarter Balanced data? And how much more can I get down to like the strand level? You know, the Smarter Balanced is not built that way. Mm -hmm. It's a much shorter assessment. It's an adaptive assessment. 
And one could easily question if, you know, using strand level information with six questions or seven questions was really appropriate to be making those types of decisions of mastery or, you know, or curriculum decisions. It really was a starting point, if anything. So I think part of the assessment discussion has been to really take a more thoughtful look about what's happening locally and the school's intense need to be factored in within the context of the overall district. Mm-hmm. What is the district's plan? And also screening, universal screening, mm-hmm. you know, especially in the K-3 world. Right. You know, how is your assessment plan fitting into the universal screening requirement in K-3? So I think a lot of factors at play. Mm-hmm. So again, what we would suggest is if a school is interested in thinking more about this is to A, start with the district and or reach out to us. Okay. Because we have engaged in several conversations, primarily with district-level folks, But we'd be happy to have this conversation because we really think that we can be much more streamlined about the time we as a state collectively spend on all the assessments we're doing. Right. Uh, So we can work smarter instead of harder and longer and whatever. So, yeah. And focus more on instruction. Exactly. Instead of stop and test. So you've given us a lot to think about today with everything that you've said. And I can't wait to now go back into EdSide. I've been in there a little bit, but I wasn't really sure what I was looking at because I haven't been to the training or anything. So I was just kind of exploring there. But now I've got some specific things that I want to go in and see. But... Are there any words of wisdom that you would give to a school leader about using the data, about trying to make the right decisions based on what it is that we're seeing and what we're learning, and what's the best way to work with teachers? Anything that you would like to leave with our listeners that you think is really important for us to know? A few thoughts. Okay. One is before looking for data, have some questions in mind as to what you're trying to look for. And I say this especially with launching into something like EdSight or EdSight Secure, is it's easy to get lost in and overwhelmed with the data. You know, so I think it helps to have a set of questions that you're after, one or two or three questions. This is what I want to find out. Let me see what I can find out. You know, I think having that is one thing. The second thing is knowing what the data actually represent and what are the reasonable inferences you can draw from it. And this pertains to really all data. If you look at a change in proficiency rates, percent level three, from 50% to 55%, okay, great. It's a 5% increase, but if you're talking about 20 kids, it might be one kid. Just be very mindful about what the data are actually representing and being careful about what inferences you're drawing from it. And we caution a lot against using this proficiency rate because anytime you use a binary measure like a proficiency rate, you tend to get very skewed trend lines, especially when N sizes get small. You'll get very skewed trend lines, which is why we have shifted away from using percent level three to using SPI, which is more an average measure of performance because it's a much more accurate reflection of the performance of all students. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really being clear on like what inferences you can draw from the data that are reasonable and supported in the data. And that does require a certain level of awareness of the underlying measure itself. And lastly, I would say, and this pertains a little bit to assessments, is be very careful with subscores on any test, any test is when they give you subscores, when a student takes a 40-item test, 45-item test, and then they give you six different scores mm-hmm. in addition to an overall right. score, 
you have to really be very cautious about those subscores because they're making those decisions on those subscores based on a much smaller subset of the items. Mm -hmm. Whether it be if it's a 40 question test, then maybe they're taking 15 of those questions and making or a, three a, or four. Or I mean, three or four. <laughs> exactly. You've got to be really yeah. careful yeah. in, again, how much weight you're putting on that piece of data and being very smart about it. I know I said the last thing, but there's one more thing, which is I would say you triangulate your data. Don't just use one measure. Try to triangulate with multiple measures. And if they're all kind of pointing in one direction, then you say, you know what? I think there's something going on here with this particular child. Again, I'm talking more about individual students or small groups of students. Mm -hmm. I think you really want to be able to triangulate before you make sort of make or break decisions for students. Very important, yes, thank you. So I wanna just kinda of go out into the future five years from now, where do you think that we're gonna be in Connecticut in terms of our accountability system and how close do you think we're gonna to get to closing the achievement gap and ensuring that all of our students are college and career ready? Wow, uh, this is the crystal this, ball question. It, it is, it is, I, <laughs> I just would like to hear your prediction. Well, I could tell you what we have projected. Okay. And here I'll come back to our plan that we have submitted to the federal government, okay. which is our ESSA plan, actually, our Every Student Succeeds Act plan, which is on our State Department of Ed website. So what we have projected there is a 13-year time frame starting last year, okay. last year as a baseline, and then projecting out to 2930. 20, oh, wow. So it's a 13-year time frame to get all of our students to an SPI of 75, I think you're familiar with that, right. making sure that students on average are hitting their growth targets, that chronic absenteeism rates currently were close to 10%, that we be at 5%. So there is a linear trajectory that we've drawn from last year all the way out to 2029-30. So if I were to look at a crystal ball, I guess my hope would be that we are in five years on track or maybe even better than on track that would be great. to getting to that 20, 29, 30, because I think that's the roadmap for us, for our alliance districts, for our commissioner's network and six schools. And clearly for us as a state, it would be wonderful if in five years we are on track to reaching that that milestone. Well, let's hope that we are. We're going to work I hope really so hard, too. right? Yep. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. You've given us me, our listeners, um, some very valuable information about how to better utilize the tools provided in EdSight, EdSight Secure, and just our assessments in general, and given us a deeper understanding of how we can maybe help our students learn and grow and achieve all of our goals. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And again, a special thanks to you and to everyone listening. I want to thank you for joining us for this episode of Cast Conversations. I can't thank you enough for this opportunity. I really, really appreciate it. I'm really proud of the team at the department that actually produces a lot of this work. There is a small but mighty team that's actually working really hard on all these fronts. So on behalf of all of them, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Cast Conversations. This podcast is brought to you by the Connecticut Association of Schools, serving schools and their leaders since 1935.